Before we get to our guest, a quick message from our sponsor. Back in June of 2020, I had COVID and I still have long COVID. And one of the symptoms of long COVID is insomnia. I'll wake up at two or three in the morning and can't get back to sleep for two or three, four hours. And it kind of ruins the whole day next day because you don't have any energy. So what did I do? I called Mike Lindell at MyPillow and I got the entire sleep system. I have the mattress topper. I have the Giza sheets, which my colleague Christine Dolan says are regal. I have the MyPillow, the MyPillows themselves. And I have the comforter, which feels like a grandmother's house. It's so warm and cozy. And I have the regal duvet cover on, on top of this comforter. So I have the entire sleep system. I literally work all day long. I'm exhausted. I lay down in this sleep system and literally just wake up the next morning. It's amazing how well I sleep. I, I can't, get, can't wait to get back to it. So what can you do? You can go to MyPillow.com and use promo code CDM and get the best discounts that Mike has to offer right now for the entire sleep system. But don't just get the sleep system. If you're buying household products, make sure to check with Mike Lindell first, promo code CDM to get the best prices. He has over 600 products. Don't go shop at the corporate communists and the big box retailers. Go to Mike first, support the patriotic movement, support free media at CDM. Use promo code CDM at MyPillow.com to get the best discounts and sleep really well going forward. And now let's get to our guest. So welcome to Author's Bookshelf. This is our new segments for our network uh, across uh, all of our platforms, uh, internationally, locally, and uh, this is going to be exciting because we have decided, Todd Wood and I have worked together for some time now, and we have decided that, you know, what the world is missing is some historical context for some of the major problems that are happening around the world. So we're going to continue to build this and interview authors who have taken the time to write books that are significant to help people understand what's going on. And in our first show, uh, we have a, a woman who is a political commentator. She's a political activist. She's originally from Venezuela. And welcome to Elizabeth Rogalini. Thank Hi, you. Hi, thank us. you so much for that introduction. And I'm the first one. I'm I'm honored. You're the first you're the first one. We have <laughs> we have had Bobby Kennedy on for his book, but <clears throat> we're just gonna we're gonna rock oh. and roll with this and get authors out there so people start reading books again. And your yeah. book, Elizabeth, to put it out there, How Progressiveness Destroyed Venezuela, a cautionary tale and how timely it is uh, in this time when many Americans think it's okay for socialism, Maoism, communism, or any form or fashion combination thereof. And so tell us how you came to write this book. <clears throat> Pardon me, I'm losing my voice today. How did um, you come to write it? Because you were born in Venezuela, correct? Yeah, I, I was. Um, honestly, it never occurred to me to write a book. Um, there's many people that I have come across that are Venezuelan that I would say are more qualified than me to write a book. Um, but I think what uh, piqued the interest of the, the, um, the publishing house that contacted me was the fact that I was in the generation that is primarily wanting to try socialism. Right. Um, so they wanted to have someone around my age and uh, use my voice for this. So Essentially, I had a video that went viral. I, I had that video. I made it with the intention of just expressing my thoughts, but I never intended it to go anywhere just for me to let out some frustration of what was happening and what, what I was seeing in 2020. 
And that video ended up on all over Twitter. It ended up on Fox News. And that's how um, Kurt and History of Books ended up contacting me. Well, it's a great book. I read it. Um, I enjoyed reading it. I've been to Venezuela before Chavez yeah. uh, came, you know, was elected in 1998. And I saw I've seen the, you know, a beautiful country go down the tubes. And you 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 write in the book, which I think is a, a great historical narrative yeah. about the history between Venezuela and yeah. Cuba and also China. And you talk about how, you know, when people think of what happened to Venezuela with the election of Chavez, hoping that there was going to be a change, people don't really understand that Venezuela in the context of South America mm -hmm. was one of the leading voices of freedom and democracy and wealth. And then all of a sudden things changed when Chavez came in and it just went down the tubes after that. So go into a little bit of the um, the historical context of Cuba and Venezuela, because I think I think most people don't understand that, you know, unless you're a student or a scholar of Latin America or Venezuela. Yeah, so um, the Cuba-Venezuela connection was actually something that I wrote on my senior thesis, and I use mm -hmm. a lot of that for that chapter in the book, which is a specific chapter. Um, don't remember the title right now, but essentially... I can look it up, can look it up for you, just a second. Uh, the Cubanization of Venezuela. Yes, exactly. Um, and one. that's what a lot of people were, were seeing at the very beginning stages of, of Chavez. Right. So, but most people would say, no, that's never going to happen here. That's never mm -hmm. going to happen here. Venezuela is, uh, you know, not, we weren't necessarily developed yet, but we were on our way. Everyone felt like we were, our, you know, a flourishing society, very generally wealthy in terms of Latin America. So no one really thought that anything like that could happen. Everyone was sort of asleep in their comfort. Um, and but Cuba, specifically Fidel Castro, saw Venezuela as a target because he needed um, money. He needed, and he chose oil as that as a way to keep their island afloat, right. figuratively speaking. And because it, at the beginning they were using Russia, or rather maybe Russia was using them, mm -hmm. but they wanted to redirect, and right. uh, they saw Venezuela as the way to keep going and also spread communism throughout the rest of Latin America. They thought if we were able to get through to Venezuela, we could do it with the rest of the countries. Um, so they tried multiple times in different ways. They tried uh, violently. They sent guerrilla into Venezuela and we kept rejecting them over and over until um, they finally saw that opening in 1992 where Hugo Chavez did the, the, the insurrection against the elected president. Um, and that's the, it's funny because someone was talking about that insurrection in 1992 and they contrasted that with January 6th here in the United States. And it was la it's laughable to think that right. the insurrection of 1992 in somewhere compares to this supposed insurrection here. There were hundreds of people dead on the streets on, uh, the, on I think it was, yes, February 6th of 1992. And that insurrection failed. And that landed Chavez in prison, um, but he was exonerated two years later. 
But and he, be, when, he became a larger than life. Yes, the media sort of enshrined him because of how good of a speaker he was. Mm -hmm. And that's when uh, um, Fidel Castro took note of him. And he, that, the relationship started building from there. When he came out of prison, there was already like a burgeoning, like a flourishing relationship between them. And he was, you know, he was an idealist, but and I think Fidel Castro sort of used him as a way to get the Venezuelan gates open instead of him having to do anything violently again. And when, he, when the gates flew open, mm -hmm. Castro was able to get what we call the, the Venezuelan gold, which is really the oil, yeah. get access to the oil, to get the oil to be sold or given to, I guess we should call it, yeah. given to Cuba, who, and Cuba then could resell it. Exactly. All right. So yeah. let's go back to because you were born in Venezuela. Um, mm -hmm. Your parents were there. You're immigrants from, from Europe. Yeah. From and, Spain um, and Italy, but mostly Spain. All right. So your, your grandparents grew up there. They, know, they knew about the flourishing times in the 50s and the 60s in Venezuela. So they were able to educate you about what it was like when they yeah. came and they built the country. And, they, they, and it was homogenized um, in Venezuela in terms of the immigrants building up the country at the same time with people who were from Venezuela originally. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about what your, what your parents and your grandparents shared with you about the time when they lived there as young people. Well, um, it's, it's really crazy to think about the contrast of what my grandparents lived and my parents lived. My, my dad is always lamenting the fact that we didn't have the, a childhood like he did. He would go off and go on in the, the motorcycle, which my grandfather forbid. But he, like, it was very safe. They would go, he, he and my mom would ride together through the countryside. The, the doors were often open. My grandmother still has her house in Caracas, has mm -hmm. a big um, metal gate or iron gate, but it used to be fully open. The, the, most people did not have those kinds of gates in the 50s because they were not necessary. Um, there, was little many, there was little crime in the 50s and 60s. There was very there little crime. My grandfather grew up in uh, Rio Caribe, which is like a mm -hmm. sort of fishing village uh, in the northeastern part of Venezuela, which is where a lot of the French and Spanish immigrants and Italian immigrants settled at first. Um, his grandfather was a, his father was a doctor. He chose a career of engineering. Uh, they were pretty much middle class. But then because of what was happening in Venezuela, he was able to really uh, come up in the world. He moved to Caracas with his family. Um, and a lot of people were like this. I, and I'm not, I'm not naive to the fact that it was perfect. Everyone had, you know, com complete wealth. No, that's not the case. But it was starting to happen. And, and people that were emigrating, so that the, there was a president, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, apologies for, for my lack of Benicourt? memory. I'm sorry, no, um, the, he was the one, <laughs> I should know this, I should really know this, but the uh, one that essentially, um, there was a lot of problems going on in Europe, and he started kind of welcoming people from Spain and Portugal, and those people came to Venezuela as a land of opportunity, Mm -hmm. And they were able to build wealth just by doing small little things, opening bodegas, uh, restaurants, renting out apartments, and they were living really well. And many people chose to not go back. In fact, 
Today, a lot of those people that have uh, their grandparents were on that wave of immigration, they chose to go back to Europe, to Spain, to Portugal, etc. I know quite a few. But this their grandparents. Is, this, this is after Chavez came in. They, and, uh, yes, they went to went back after Chavez, but their grandparents stayed. All mm. of the like the old timers stayed because that's where they felt like this country gave them the opportunity. So I'm going to stay here and ride it out, even though it's still happening. But they they stayed there because they felt they owed so much to the place, and they were so attached to it. So there was a there was a lot of immigration like around the the 40s and 50s coming from that for people that were just building a small businesses, nothing mm. grand, but, but building, the middle were, class, building the middle class. In, exactly. In exactly. That was, that, was a, that was a big deal at that time and point in history, even if this is after world war two. Exactly. My grandfather had a secretary uh, from, because he was also a builder. Like my, my dad, my dad's an engineer, my grandfather as well. And he had a secretary um, who was able with her salary to go off to Europe a couple times every year. And he, in fact, he, they run into her one time in Paris, like having a coffee, like <laughs> the mm -hmm. boss and the secretary run into each other in Paris. And that's, that's kind of like the idea of what it was, uh, how the middle class was really coming up and how there was so much more opportunity happening until, you know, things started being problematic. And that's why I named the book. Uh, how progressivism destroyed Venezuela instead of socialism, because mm. I really think the issues started before Chavez with, you know, excessive um, social programs, let's say. We're, I'm not against some social program, programs, but mm -hmm. they started to be excessive to the point that it was um, a burden to the rest of the productive society. So you do you hear from your generation uh, that's that's in Venezuela that stayed in Venezuela? When did you come to the states? Let's just set that up. When did you? I come? came um, about ten years ago. Okay. Yeah, for college. All right. So when you were at university, um, did did people in, in your generation did they see that Chavez's promises really were faint? Oh, yeah. And for they were destructive. My the people that I grew up with, yes, absolutely. That was I, I think we were talking about politics since we were in middle school or mm -hmm. before even before that. It was a constant conversation. I would hear the radio shows and and some would say, Well, you were being indoctrinated since you were hearing this type of this side of the, the uh coin. But I took note of that when I was young and I started looking like hearing the other part and it was just not convincing because of what I was seeing versus of what it used to be like and how the country started becoming more and more dangerous. So most of the people I grew up with, um, my age that I grew up with in Caracas, they saw Chavez as like the plague. And you write, you write in the book about how your family uh, talked about politics all the time, even if some of their neighbors, you know, might report on them as the changes happened. Uh, but, but growing up in your family, there was, act, there was political activism about what they were seeing happening to the country at the time. Yeah, I think politics was just uh, occupied so much of, because it, it really was affecting the minuscule parts of our life. So everyone was talking about it in family reunions, luncheons, brunch, dinner. It, politics was always part of the conversation of what was going on because it was affecting our life, like anything about, about our lives was being affected by what was going on. 
and the, especially the increasing insecurity. So, and, and just like in places like Argentina, mm -hmm. uh, where kidnapping is prominent that, and yeah. actually led to the development of bulletproof cars and, and windows and, and dark shaded cars, um, talk about how the crime rose and the, the whole threat about kidnapping and how that affected you. Yeah, I remember uh, first starting hearing about the fact that this was happening more often because it happened to an aunt of my dad. So she was almost kidnapped. You know, that it, that it wasn't a big deal when we look back. But at the time, we thought, wow, that's, that's crazy. You, she almost got kidnapped. That's, mm -hmm. And we were hearing all these stories from people that were having similar experiences. But then we, were here, when, then we started hearing horror stories. Um, and that was such the case, like the Fadul brothers that were like three brothers kidnapped with their chauffeur. All of them killed. It was such a... Like, you, wrote, you wrote beautifully in your book about what their mother had said. Oh, yeah. Tell the audience about that because it just took my breath away. Yeah, I, I remember being in church listening to that letter. And it was essentially the mother at some point realized that these kids were not going to be returned to her. So she asked the kidnappers to kill them in their sleep mm -hmm. if that was the case. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, the kidnappers did not oblige. And uh, they killed them each awake in front of each other. And that was such a shock to everyone. I remember looking around me at, at church and everyone was crying. And we were maybe in our in seventh grade. Elizabeth, explain to the audience, for those people that don't understand, why were people being kidnapped in Venezuela? For money. Um, because there started... There... Who were these people that were kidnapping people? Explain Bands. how that works, because people have to understand that um, when people talk about progressivism, right. or they talk about any of the isms, people think of, you know, some young people think of it in terms of altruistic thinking, mm -hmm. an altruistic way of life, a utopia. But in fact, it wasn't. Right. Um, the, the thing about Chavez is that when he first came into power, into you know his position, he was told about the increasing insecurity and uh, he chose to ignore it because his first priority was really the ideology that mm -hmm. he wanted to impose. Uh, so then the insecurity started rising, uh, organized bands started coming together. The people that were the poorest in society started resorting to this because the middle class or the lower class income was just not enough. Mm -hmm. So some sort of for, for, you know, decided against their, their uh, values and morals if they, if they had any, and they decided, you know, this is the way that I'm going to be able to feed my family. There's actually a, a film called Sequestro Express, Express Kidnapping, right. that sort of shows you what a typical kidnapper might might look like you know they have also a family they have kids that they have to feed so a lot of them um don't necessarily want to cause harm but they see it as the only way to to um achieve their you know the, to feed their families because the the 
It's a survival. But explain that because exactly. when Chavez came on the scene and he and he he, he was elevated, having uh, you know, even though the coup was the coup was a failure in '92, Chavez comes out, Castro elevates him, Castro gets him. He, mm -hmm. he becomes a voice because because Chavez was a great orator. Yeah. He goes in there, he wins. But talk about the message, because the message in 90, oh, yes. that was bought by the little guys. Yeah. It was bought by everybody. We're going to take care of everybody. Yeah. And then the, when Chavez came in, it didn't happen. The message at some point started to be that the rich people and anyone that was middle class and up was the enemy. Mm -hmm. And their life mattered less. And therefore, um, a lot of the, the crimes against them, unless they were connected somehow to the police, mm -hmm. were kind of overlooked. In fact, most didn't care or they sort of uh, thought, this is great. We'll just kidnap them. They're, they're the ones that are hurting us. Mm -hmm. So there's no remorse in kidnapping them or killing them even. Not to say that this was the case for everyone, but that was a big part of the message. Like, these people are evil. The ones that are middle class or upper middle class or, or wealthy, uh, they're, they're hurting you. Um, so if anything were to happen to them, good riddance. That was kind of a little bit of that message was being sent out. And uh, there was, of course, organized crime forming that was completely ignored by the police. And... There came a point, there are some people that were involved in these um, organizations that said in covert interviews that there was some of the money that was being paid out by the people like trying to rescue their, their family members that was going up into the hands of government officials. So some of them were also involved in the kidnapping of their own citizens. And your, your book goes into the triangle between Venezuela, Cuba, and China today. It, 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 give, give the audience a taste for this, because the reason why we're doing author's bookshelves is to entice right. the audience to buy your book. Yeah. So Venezuela became like a, a place where people could just take things. China saw that. They could just go in there and take from this country. Same thing with Cuba, because honestly, um, they're especially I think the connection is way stronger between Cuba and Venezuela than with China, even though, of course, there China came into the picture later. But Cuba uh, started using their connections with Venezuela to train Venezuelan officials and to also infiltrate government um, to benefit them, benefit their little island and their officials, not necessarily the Cuban citizens, and mm. use the Venezuelan um, wealth to do that. And China also became involved with uh, the oil industry. In fact, I think they, they took one of the oil tankers at one point because of the Venezuelan debt went up so high that this small uh, South American country could not pay it. So essentially China owns Venezuela at some point. In fact, I think they still do. Right, so, so the, the, the message from this, especially to your generation, mm -hmm. that where you have actually lived in your homeland, you've come to America, you see in 2020, 
the cries for socialism, the cries for new socialism, the cries for a combination of Maoism, uh, you know, with, with socialism and communism. What's your message to these people who, who, who take a look at what's happening in, the, in this country, uh, having lived it? and seeing this firsthand in your own country? I would say go spend some time in those places that you so wish you were like. I mean, be careful what you wish for. There, there were definitely left-leaning professors in Venezuela in the 70s and 80s that were also advocating for these types of things. And it's funny because now they live abroad. They've left. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Colombia right now. They, they just voted in a leftist politician into power, into, you know, being the president. And many of them voted for socialism in Colombia. And they openly say this. I have voted for socialism in my country, but that does not mean that I cannot live in capitalism abroad. And they live in New York or London or all these places. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge hypocrisy. And I see it all the time. And what is your, when you speak to people in your generation here in the states, what do they ask you about you discussions about socialism, about Venezuela? Well, I mean, do they, they even, do they even understand, even though Chavez is long dead, that yeah. that the 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 harm in which his policies culturally across all of the different social economic levels have have hurt the country overall compared to the way it was back in the 50s and 60s or are they just ignorant no they don't understand it and they don't understand it because that's they don't see uh the connection at all they just think it was a bad president he was a dictator and that's why that happened but they don't see the ideology in place there because there, we we had a dictator before and i have to say <laughs> the economy was actually much better then and i I'm not advocating for that type of, uh, you know, I'm not advocating for a dictatorship, but it's not that that, that destroys a nation. It's the policies that are in place. Um, so, yeah, they're not at all aware. There's always a question. And always people say, if, if the conversation about socialism comes up, always people say, well, it's not the, it's not the same. Or they didn't do it correctly. You know, and, and I also have to ask, like, who is going to do it correctly? Who has done it correctly ever? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, are you going to do it better than they did? That's just what I wonder. Well, this has been quite enjoyable. Elizabeth Rogalini, thank you very much. People should buy this book. They need to read it. It's a cautionary tale how progressivism destroyed Venezuela. Elizabeth, I know that you have taken you away from your studies for your law school exams. So good yeah. luck with your exams. Thank you. Good luck with this book. I can't wait to, you know, have the next one, you know, when you're finished with law school. But it's, <laughs> in all sincerity, thank you very much for joining Thank you, Christine. And good luck I really with appreciate the book. it. Time flew. They didn't even realize. Thank you so much.